This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, Danny, first of all, we have good news and bad news today. The good news is, is that it seems for the moment, at least, the Ukrainians have won the Battle of Kiev. They have driven the Russian troops out. They withdrawn from the areas that they've occupied. It was unthinkable at the start of this war when the Russians said their goal was to reach Kiev in three days and decapitate the regime that after five weeks of fighting, they would withdraw and the Ukrainians would win. So that is unquestionably good news. What is horrific is what we've seen in the aftermath of that withdrawal. We are just seeing images we woke up to this week in Buka, Ukraine, of people lying in the streets with their hands tied behind their backs, bullet holes in the backs of their head, women who were raped in front of their children, their bodies set on fire, hundreds of bodies piled into mass graves. President Biden has said that Putin is a war criminal, that these are war crimes. President Zelensky has said this is genocide. What do you think? So I agree with President Biden for the second time when he has said something very bold and authoritative about Russia. This president, Putin, should go, and he is a war criminal, but he's not the only war criminal. All of the generals, all of the Ministry of Defense, all of the people on the ground who are committing these crimes, their commanders, their senior officers, all of these people are war criminals, and we need a system of justice. President Zelensky just spoke to the UN Security Council, so let's let him describe it in his words, and then we'll pick up with you. I am addressing you on behalf of the people who honor the memory of the deceased every single day in the memory of the civilians who died, who were shot and killed in the back of their head after being tortured. Some of them were shot on the streets, others were thrown into the wells, so they died there in suffering. They were killed in their apartments, houses, blowing up grenades. The civilians were crushed by tanks while sitting in the, their cars in the middle of the road just for their pleasure. They cut off uh, uh, limbs, cut their throats, slashed their throats. Women were raped and killed in front of their children. They were, uh, their tongues were pulled out only because the aggressor did not hear what they wanted to hear from them. So this is no different from other ter- terrorists such as Daesh. So you've heard it from the mouth of the president of Ukraine. He was on the ground. He went to Bucha. He saw what happened. And the reason that I'm spending time is not prurience. It's not ghoulishness. It's not anti-Russian. It's none of the above. It is the notion that this day and age, and I've said this before about other places, Mark, and our listeners have heard me, the notion that in this day and age when we all piously like to preach never again... The reality is that we are seeing mass graves again, that we are seeing the systemic, not merely the occasional and exploitative, but the systemic rape of women, their murder. As you said, one story that was just absolutely disgusting, the woman who described how soldiers had come into her apartment, they threatened her child. They said that, do you want your mommy's 
brains blown out in front of you, and then they raped her in front of this little child. For days. For days. Who does this and who thinks that these kinds of crimes can be excused? I want everybody, as the discussion moves on, to rehabilitating Russia, to lifting sanctions, to making it easier on the Europeans to continue to fill Vladimir Putin's coffers, to remember these stories, because this is something that we have, with our indifference over the last 20, 30 years, allowed to happen. What is different, I think, this time than was true in Aleppo or in Grozny in 1999 is that this is the world's first cell phone war and that people are on the ground. Almost the second that Russian troops had pulled out of Bukha, there was video available on Twitter and on social media of the bodies in the streets. It's much harder to hide these crimes than it used to be even a few years ago. And the documentation is there for international authorities. The evidence is being gathered by people on the ground. And we need to hold Putin and his cronies and his generals and on down to the people who actually did these things to account. But here's the problem, Danny. How do we do it? In Yugoslavia, Buka reminds me a lot of Srebrenica, which was a city where massacres took place during the Yugoslav War. We created the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, known in diplomatic circles as the ICTI, and held people to account and had war crimes trials for those sorts of things. The ICTI was created by the UN Security Council. The UN Security Council is a body where Russia has a veto. So therefore, it is unlikely to allow us to pass a measure in the Security Council creating a international war crimes tribunal for Russia and Ukraine. And similarly, the International Criminal Court, which was created over the objections of the United States and without our signature, and we're not a party to it. This is an independent body. We've rejected it precisely because we're concerned that people will turn around and use it against us, politicize prosecutions of American service members. So we don't have a lot of great options in the international stage for accountability, or do we? So I think we actually have more options than we allow. And this is one of the things that I particularly dislike about the International Criminal Court is its assumption of jurisdiction and its denial of the authority of the Ukrainian government. One of the things that the Rome Statute, which underpins the International Criminal Court, provided was that these investigations would not take place if there was a government that had procedures in place that would, in fact, deliver the kind of justice that was necessary, right? This is the argument the United States makes is no. No, you don't need to prosecute us because we have systems in place. And when there are crimes like what happened at Abu Ghraib, for example, mm -hmm. we prosecute these people. We have a system of justice and it works. I think Ukraine has a system of justice. You said at the outset that one of the things that is incredible is that the Ukrainian government is still standing, that the Ukrainian people are still fighting, and that Russia has lost more territory than it has gained inside Ukraine. That means that when this ends, what we want to see is Ukraine deliver this justice, war crimes trials. We can help them. We can provide them with evidence. We can provide them with satellite data. We can provide them with pictures. We can do all of that. But we need to be helping them and preserving this information because they can prosecute. The one thing that they need to be able to deliver that justice, however, is that the international community will look at their verdicts and be willing to sanction the individuals who are named, that we can extradite individuals who have left Russia's jurisdiction, that we can really make life very difficult for these people. But that requires resolve on our part. I don't know if we have it. The other thing it requires is victory.
right? The reason we were able to hold the Nuremberg trials is because we defeated Hitler and uh, we had a free Germany where these trials could take place. My biggest fear is that we don't have a strategy for victory right now in Ukraine. What everyone's hoping for is to stop the fighting as soon as possible and have a frozen conflict, right? Where, okay, Ukrainians get to keep Kiev and its environs and the territory that they've liberated and the Russians will end up holding Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea and uh, whatever territory they've gained up there. And we'll have some kind of a settlement in which the Ukrainians have to make concessions to the Russians in order to get the fighting to stop. And, uh, you know, maybe they can- like a strategist at the White House. I do, don't I? Well, I was one, but not in this White House. Uh, And and then the Ukrainians have to make concessions about neutrality and they're not going to join NATO and all the rest of this stuff or the European Union or something like that. And my view is after the images that we saw in Bucha, Putin gets nothing. Putin gets nothing. They are losing this war. They are not in a position to dictate the terms of peace. We need to have a strategy to help the Ukrainians not just defend their territory, but to defeat Russia, to drive every Russian soldier out of Ukraine from all of the territory that they've claimed, not since February, since 2014. And then we can help the Ukrainians begin to focus on justice and to aid with those efforts and all the things that you described. But we have to win first. The answer to war crimes is to defeat the aggressor. Right. But again, we've talked about this before. We're willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. And what we need is to do more to help the Ukrainians win. And that doesn't mean we have troops on the ground. It means that, for example, the European Union, in the wake of these horrific, horrific crimes against humanity, the European Union is now debating stopping coal and oil imports from Russia. Notice there's a word there that I didn't say, coal and oil, but not gas. Right. Mm -hmm. And even so, they're not certain that they're going to do that. They need to tighten the screws. They need to be willing to take even 1% of the pain that the Ukrainians are taking now in order to help that victory. Nobody is saying put German troops on the ground, put French troops on the ground, put American troops on the ground. What we're saying is take a little bit of the pain that is required in order to deny Putin money. Russia is continuing to earn hundreds of millions of dollars from its oil sales. The European Union is still unwilling to sanction the main bank in Russia that is engaged in sales, Gazprom Bank. And of course, because of the conflict that's been going on, the price of energy has skyrocketed. And that will mean that Russia in April, just in April, will earn $10 billion in additional That's not rubles, by the way, $10 billion in additional revenue that's still flowing into Putin's coffers. You can do a lot with that money. Oh, and by the way, while we're supposedly isolating the Russian officials, we're sitting next to them in the negotiations for the Iran nuclear deal. And we're actually talking about allowing them to have a deal to build Iran's civilian nuclear reactors to the tune of $10 billion. But other than that, we're going to isolate them. But other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, so... To talk about some of these human rights questions and to talk about how to isolate Putin, the war criminal, as President Biden called him, we invited our friend David Kramer to join us today. David Kramer serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute. He's also a senior fellow at Florida International University's Kimberly Green Latin American and Caribbean Center. He has taught at Florida International University. Before that, he was a Senior Director for Human Rights and democracy at the McCain Institute, the president of Freedom House. He was with the German Marshall Fund, and he served for eight years at the Department of State as Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Rights, and Labor, also for European and Eurasian Affairs. I'm not even halfway through this man's resume. 
Anyway, we're really grateful that he was willing to take the time to talk to us. Here's our interview. Well, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much to both of you. Appreciate it. Well, so we've seen that the Ukrainians have succeeded in driving the Russians out of Kiev and the surrounding areas. But what they found in the wake of their withdrawal are some of the most horrific scenes of war crimes we've witnessed in many years. Talk to us a little bit about what we know about what the Russians have been doing to the civilians in Ukraine. They've been committing horrific acts of war crimes and I think crimes against humanity. And I think you don't have to be an expert on international law or war crimes to draw those conclusions. We're seeing it with our eyes. We're hearing it from orders that are being given. And so I think there is clearly a case to be made. And we also, though, shouldn't treat this as something out of the ordinary for Russian forces. We got to remember how Putin came to power in 1999 by overseeing a brutal campaign against Russian citizens who happened to live in Chechnya with the leveling of Grozny, the capital. We've seen it in Syria. We've seen brutal measures used before in Ukraine, the first time Russia invaded in 2014. But we're seeing it perhaps more graphically and visually this time and on a larger scale. So it is absolutely horrific. Unfortunately, it's not out of character for Mr. Putin. So you say it's not out of character, and I know, you know, in my area is the Middle East. I've seen it in Syria. I'm glad the world is paying attention this time because Grozny was not was not a headline grabber. All of the chemical weapons attacks, the barrel bombs, the assaults on women and children, the rapes, the systematic torture, they weren't front page news. But now I think Perhaps because Zelensky has done such a good job communicating and because we have such good visuals on this, we see this. The question to my mind is, why? This is your business. You've been dealing with Russia and Putin and Europe for so long. Why? This is, I think, the only way that Putin knows how to operate. And I think it also reveals the abysmal training of Russian forces this kind of activity, this kind of behavior is not something I think you would find in most other militaries, at least those in democratic societies. But it's a reminder that Russia is not a democracy. Russia is actually, I think, become a totalitarian system where the last vestiges of independent media, Echo Musk V on radio, Doge TV, and even Novaya Gazeta, the last really independent newspaper, have all either closed down or suspended their activities. And Putin thinks he can get away with this. And in part, Danny, I think he has. After Chechnya, he then became president, elected in March of 2000, and uh, has been dealt with as a regular leader. He was at G8 meetings, remember, until Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014. And so he hasn't paid a price for this kind of behavior. There were allegations, as you know, of war crimes in Syria. And there was no price that Russia really paid to speak of. The first time we imposed sanctions of any consequence was after his invasion of Ukraine in 2014. But most of those came after the shootdown of the Malaysian airliner that killed 298 people. I think had that not happened, we would not have seen the sanctions that were imposed in 2014. This time, I think you're absolutely right is different in part because the Ukrainians have been so heroic and effective in pushing back and making sure that the world is exposed to the horrors that Putin is inflicting on the Ukrainian people. And so there seems to be much greater coverage of this situation. There wasn't a great deal of coverage in Chechnya in 99. Syria was hard to cover for Western journalists. 
And let's also be candid about this. The Ukrainians look more like we do. And so I think there is more concern for what's happening to them than perhaps for people who looked a little different. You mentioned Chechnya in 1999. Of course, that was preceded by a bombing of apartment complexes in Russia, which he killed thousands of Russians in order to create a pretext for that invasion. A false flag operation. False flag operation. And so he was willing to kill his own people, not just people of other countries, in order to do this sort of thing. And Vladimir Karamurza has said that there are more political prisoners in Russia now than there were during the Soviet Union during the 1970s. You said it's a totalitarian state. Can you talk about the domestic oppression? Sure, sure. And this is a critical point, Mark, because I've long believed, and I'm not the only one who has talked about this, but that the way a regime treats its own people is often indicative of how it will behave in foreign policy. So when the Putin regime doesn't respect the rights of Russian citizens, it certainly isn't going to respect the rights or lives, for that matter, of Ukrainians or Georgians or Syrians, whatever the case may be, nor is it going to respect concepts of sovereignty and territorial integrity. So we shouldn't be surprised when Putin invades other countries, when he threatens use of nuclear weapons, when they engage in this kind of horrific behavior where you've seen exposed in Bucha and sadly, I fear, will be exposed in other places. This is the worst crackdown on human rights in Russia since the breakup of the Soviet Union. I think you'd have to go back decades to find anything comparable possibly to the Andropov period, which was not very lengthy. And we have seen use of banned substances, of chemical weapons, Novichok, used against Russian citizens, in particular Alexei Navalny. You mentioned Vladimir Karamurza, who himself was poisoned twice in Russia. So they poison their own people. They assassinate prominent opposition figures like Boris Nemtsov, who was shot and killed yards from the Kremlin in 2015. We've seen the treatment of others. Anna Politkovskaya, going back to 2006, who was shot and killed in her apartment building. And they don't, by the way, limit their campaign to people inside Russia, of course. They went after Alexander Litvinenko, a former FSB officer who was poisoned with polonium in 2006, just after Politkovskaya was killed. And so we're seeing a brutal crackdown. It is illegal to describe what Russia is doing right now as a war or to use the term invasion. If you are caught doing so, you could be subject to a jail sentence of 10 to 15 years. Their efforts to close down internet access is also a reflection of how they are trying to control the narrative. It's also a reflection, I would say, of some insecurity on their part. They're also worried about bringing bodies back to Russia, those who have been killed fighting in Ukraine. They're worried about domestic reaction there. So this is all coming on the backdrop of an ugly situation in Russia in which a lot of opposition figures, liberal activists, Average citizens just feel that they don't have a bright future and need to leave the country. You mentioned all the poisonings of both domestic opposition leaders and foreign opponents. President Zelensky has repeatedly said he is willing to sit down with Vladimir Putin. I mean, I look at that and I think I wouldn't go anywhere near the Russians. They've already said that their goal was to decapitate the regime and there were assassination squads that were reportedly stopped to take out Zelensky. Would it be wise for Zelensky to keep his distance from Vladimir Putin? Most likely, I would say. But look, Zelensky is in a very difficult position, but he has also handled this, I think, brilliantly. This may be a time where, and we had our own former actor step into the role of president and do a great job with Ronald Reagan, but a time where a former actor has stepped into the role as a wartime president and just performed heroically and with tremendous leadership. 
he has a difficult balance to find, which is he wants to end the suffering of the Ukrainian people. He wants to prevent more buchas from happening. At the same time, he has overseen a military campaign that includes participation from Ukrainian citizens who have been fighting heroically and successfully. They have been pushing back Russian forces. And so I'm sure there is a part of President Zelensky that wants to continue this campaign because he actually sees that they are gaining ground militarily. But at the same time, he's being pulled in the other direction because he does not want to visit more Ukrainian towns and cities and see what he saw on Monday with the situation in Bucha. So it's a very difficult balance for him to strike. I think he also recognizes that the only person who will end this, at least on the Russian side, is Putin. I don't think Russian negotiators that have been meeting with their Ukrainian counterparts in Turkey are likely to produce any kind of deal that Medinsky, the Russian representative, can sell back to Putin. Putin has shown no signs of interest in a negotiation of a ceasefire or an agreement. And I think unless and until he does, a meeting with Putin isn't likely in the cards. So you and our mutual friend Steve Began had a very good piece in Foreign Affairs about how the West can weaken Putin, because I think you're right. Everybody has now come to the conclusion that the only person who can stop this is Putin, and that in fact Putin is at the heart of this brutality, is at the heart of this almost sort of mindless quest to subjugate former Soviet states. And I think the big question for all of us is, how do we step up having not stepped up for so many years? We allowed this to happen. We treated him as if he was a member in good standing of the international community. John Kerry actually invited the Russians into Syria theoretically to help deal with their chemical weapons. So you and Steve wrote this piece. What do you lay out? How do we weaken him? How do we get his own people to turn on him? In the piece you're referring to, Danny, in Foreign Affairs, we argued that we should have a more concerted campaign promoting defections among Russian forces on the ground in Ukraine, that we should target them with leaflets, with direct messaging, and encourage them to realize that they have been sent essentially on a suicide mission. Their leaders don't give a damn about them. They're cannon fodder, essentially, and that they are there and they're going to get killed while also possibly engaging in war crimes themselves. And so we think that trying to encourage more people not to follow the orders that they've been given, and that could include, by the way, in the diplomatic corps, where if you could see a number of defections among Russian diplomats, particularly those who have served in the West, who know better, who know that what is transpiring are war crimes, are crimes against humanity. If Putin doesn't have the soldiers to carry out his orders, then, as we wrote in the piece, he becomes an emperor with no clothes and possibly an emperor no more. And so our view is the more that we can encourage defections among the Russian forces, providing them food, shelter, even financial incentives to defect, Putin has, I think, limited ability to beef up his military presence in Ukraine. He's got, the estimates are around 70, possibly 75% of his capable ground forces already deployed to the situation. And so the more that are picked off, the more that defect, the fewer opportunities he will have for people to carry out his agenda. We also, I think, need to do a much better job of providing the Ukrainians what they say they need. The Ukrainians are in a better position to judge what kind of military equipment they need. We absolutely need to avoid 
public disagreements interagency, if you will, say between the State Department and the Pentagon about whether it's MiGs in Poland or S-300s from Slovakia, whatever the case may be. The Ukrainians are not asking us to fight their fight for them. They're asking us for the equipment and military means to defend their own country. And it seems to me we should be bending over backwards to accommodate them on that so that they are able to push back, they are able to defend their country and to defend their freedom. The thing I think we have done fairly well is to beef up military presence, U.S. and other NATO members, in the NATO countries along Russia's and Ukraine's borders. But where I think we have made repeated and unnecessary mistake is telegraphing to Putin what we won't do. When President Biden has numerous times said, we will not put U.S. forces on the ground. I'm not saying that's the wrong position to take. I just don't understand why we would let Putin know what our limitations are. I'd much rather have him guess about what we might do. And the last thing I'll say, we also can't always be in defense or response mode. When Putin threatens nuclear weapons, when he threatens to use chemical or biological weapons, we need to remind him, by the way, that we're a pretty big nuclear power ourselves. And so any reckless actions like that will be met with the power of the United States. And I think we've been a little too defensive on these and have let Putin kind of instill some fear and intimidate us too much. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I know I speak for Mark as well on this front. We've said the same thing. We've spent more time saying what we won't do than what we will do. We understand that as many as 15,000 Russian soldiers have died. You mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation. NATO sources say upwards of 40,000 have been killed and wounded among Russian forces. They've got to come home at some point. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children, they're going to know that their family member died in this war in Ukraine. Isn't that going to redound to Putin's discredit somehow? I think it will. And just to put those numbers in perspective, the estimates are that there were about 200,000 forces deployed along the border with Ukraine and Belarus as well. And if that number, that number of about 40,000 killed and injured, or incapacitated in one way or another, not able to continue fighting. I mean, that's a fifth of the forces that they sent there. And of course, not all 200,000 are militarily capable. There are a lot of them are logistics and forces that provide food and water. And they've been doing a terrible job on that front, by the way. You see these reports of Russian forces abandoning their tanks and vehicles because they've run out of food, they've run out of fuel, they've run out of water. And so Putin anticipated and I think his military leadership anticipated that Russian forces would be greeted with open arms, that they would be welcomed in by a pro-Russian part of the population. And of course, the exact opposite happened. They ran into a buzzsaw. They will, I think, run into problems when either the bodies are brought home eventually, a lot of them are being sent to Belarus, apparently for handling, or the families discover that their sons are not coming home one way or another, or they're not able to reach them. And so I do think that this is a liability. Putin has shown a sensitivity to body bags in the past and has tried to cover them up. The Russian parliament last year passed legislation that provided for mobile crematoria so that bodies could be cremated sort of on the spot, if you will. That reduces funerals, or at least that's the thinking behind it, that it reduces the likelihood that funerals will take place and other kinds of ceremonies to mark the deaths of these individuals. I think this is a liability. It may take time to kick in. The only counter I would say, though, is because the Kremlin controls the narrative so much, 
some of these families are being brainwashed into thinking that they have died heroically, that they have died defending Russia against this so-called Nazi threat, which the Kremlin continues to peddle that ridiculous, absurd notion. And so that's one of the challenges, and it's why it's so important for us to reach these soldiers, to reach diplomats, and to get more information inside Russia, difficult though it may be. And things like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty are so important. And our friend Jamie Fly, who's the president of RFERL, is doing a great job under tremendously difficult circumstances. He's doing an event with us tomorrow at AEI, actually. So I'm right. going to ask him just these questions. So how do we hold Putin to account? And not just Putin, but the generals and the people up and down the chain of command. So in our administration, our old boss, President George W. Bush, took the U.S. signature off of the ICC treaty, the Rome Statute. We're not a party to the ICC. We don't consider it to be legitimate. We can't create a equivalent of the ICTI, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, because Russia has a veto in the Security Council. It seems that the U.N. is going to be completely feckless because we never anticipated that a veto-wielding member of the Security Council would be the country creating these war crimes across the globe. Maybe we did, but it's a flaw. <laughs> How do we hold them to account for these crimes? We can still support, I think, Mark, the ICC process without being a member. Of course, neither Russia nor Ukraine is a member either. But the ICC has already announced its launch an investigation. And I imagine that there are smarter minds than I who are thinking about a separate process that could be undertaken. And I think that there are ways of holding them accountable, even though if that step were taken actually getting a hold of Putin and putting him in the dock would be very difficult. But I think one of the important sanctions that was taken was to sanction Putin himself. It's not just about going after his money. There, of course, are no bank accounts with his name on them, but going after the circle around him that does keep his money under careful watch. But also just sanctioning him puts him in pretty awful elite company with Lukashenko, with Kim and others. And so it seems to me that we have removed any possibility that Putin could return to so-called polite company, if you will. And with President Biden's references to him as a war criminal, as a butcher, as a thug, it seems to me that any future efforts at a reset, if this thing ever quiets down, are over. And I think President Biden, I, for example, was not bothered by President Biden's comments when he said, for God's sakes, this man cannot remain in power. He wasn't specifically calling for regime change. He was, I think, stating a view, which is we all think he shouldn't remain in power because of the danger he poses and the atrocities that he is responsible for. And so I think that was an important signal, actually, to our European allies in particular, that there is not going to be a return to business as usual. And I worry that some Europeans will press for that. No. Are you sure? Because you laid out the horrific history stretching to 1999 of ignoring Putin's war crimes, the fact that we just turned a blind eye to all of these things. The Biden administration has said that the sanctions will remain in place so long as Russian troops are in Ukraine. So if this conflict ends in some sort of a stalemate, they'll want to have a lifting of the sanctions. I mean, how should we think about this as we go to an endgame? Should we ever lift these sanctions as long as Putin is in power? Yeah, it's a very good question. And my view is no, that there is no undoing what has happened. You know, I wrote a book when I was at the McCain Institute in 2017 called Back to Containment, Dealing with Putin's Regime. I've been arguing for a tougher line toward Putin for years, and I think we only really have gotten serious in the past month or so. 
I share your concern. I don't think we can view it as an automatic that we won't try some effort to restore relations, not necessarily to what they were before, but to figure out ways to work together. I can't think of a single agreement, including arms control agreements, by the way, that Putin or the Russian side have signed that they have actually abided by. The INF Treaty, other arms control agreements, the two Minsk agreements in 2014-2015, the Sarkozy Peace Plan of Georgia in 2008, the list goes on and on and on. So why anyone would think that Putin's word on a document means anything is a mystery to me. But look, I think your question gets to the point, which is there will be people who say we have to deal with Russia on arms control, on fighting terrorism, Europeans who want to get back to doing business with them. That said, I do think in Germany, for example, there has been a mini revolution under Chancellor Schultz that we're seeing Germany not doing enough, but agreeing to provide military assistance to Ukraine in the middle of a conflict where you've seen Germany's pledge to increase its defense spending and where they've suspended, hopefully terminated, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And so if those things hold, then I'll feel a little more confident. I think Germany is the key to keep an eye on when it comes to Europe. See, this is why you were a good diplomat is because you have endless faith and optimism, whereas I have (laughs) endless pessimism. I think about the fact that more than half a million people, men, women, children were murdered in Syria, and yet the Biden administration is working quietly behind the scenes to try to rehabilitate Bashar al-Assad. I think... And sitting at the negotiating table with the Russians and the Iran deal. Right. Sitting with the Russians negotiating on the Iran deal. But not just that. We had the disastrous reset with Russia, which embraced some sort of insane pretense that he was going to respond to. So I think our ability to forget is much stronger than our will to remember. That is really, I think, the question. One of the things you mentioned, the sanctioning of Putin, which has been very important and which puts him in a very, very elite class of thug. But the sanctioning of oligarchs, the people who've gotten rich around Putin, that is going to be an interesting question as to whether we are willing to hold to our so-called principles and ensure that they don't have access to their yachts, to their money. So, I guess what I'm asking is for you to give me some hope here. (laughs) Are we right to be optimistic or does this all just get swept under the carpet as Crimea did, as his crimes in Georgia did, as his crimes in Moldova did, as his crimes in Chechnya? I I could go on here. Sure. Look, I think a couple things. One is we should have gone after this dirty Russian money long ago. It shouldn't have taken Putin's invasion of Ukraine for us to recognize that ill-gotten Russian gains are corrupting and polluting our financial systems, our real estate markets. They're buying sports teams. They're trying to launder their reputation. And we should have taken this step long, long before. It also means we should not lift these sanctions after the dust settles, however it settles after this, because this isn't just about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is about getting our house in order and stopping the enabling behavior that we have provided corrupt authoritarian leaders around the world, not just in Moscow. The other part, though, I would say, Danny, is there is an opportunity here, and I'm not sure that the administration recognizes this. I think parts of it do, but other parts don't. And there is an opportunity here to deal a huge, possibly even fatal blow to Putin. And if we were to deal a fatal blow to Putin, it is a fatal blow to authoritarianism writ large. Chinese are watching this. The Iranians are watching this. 
And so this is an opportunity to really deliver a huge blow to Putin's efforts to restore influence over the region, to destroy a democratic country that borders Russia, and to impose his will however he deems fit. I hope that we are operating on the basis that this is an opportunity from a terrible, terrible tragedy that is befalling the Ukrainian people. We need to act more confidently. We need to act more aggressively, not look for a war with Russia. But this is an opportunity, thanks to the Ukrainians' heroism and courage, to really not just bloody Putin's nose, but to give him a potentially fatal blow. There are those who worry, well, what might come after Putin could be worse. You know what? I don't like what we have right now. I view what we have right now sitting in the Kremlin as an existential threat to us, to Russia's neighbors, to Russia's own people, for that matter, when we were talking about the domestic situation earlier. I'm willing to roll the dice a little bit and see what comes later. It could be worse, could be better. And so there's the optimist in me. I'm willing to take a chance to see what comes after Putin, recognizing change, or at least positive change, isn't going to happen overnight. But what we're faced with right now is pretty awful. And so I want to do whatever we can to bring about change there. So exit question for me is this. Do we have a strategy to do what you just said? Because it doesn't seem like we do. I agree with you that what Putin said, that for God's sake, uh, Putin can't remain in power, that he didn't say the wrong thing. But he also didn't say, for God's sake, Russian troops can't remain in Ukraine. We don't have a strategy of helping the Ukrainians defeat Vladimir Putin. We've never once said this aggression will not stand. We've said we'll give them the arms to defend themselves. We don't say we'll give them the arms to drive the Russians out. Do we have a strategy for victory in Ukraine right now? It's a good question, Mark, and I don't know the answer. I hope we do, but I'm not convinced that we do. One thing we should not be doing is to press Zelensky on an agreement or a ceasefire. If that's what he wants to do, we should get behind him. But if Zelensky also wants to continue pushing back on Russian aggression, on the invasion, we should get behind him 100%. And almost, if you will, I don't mean this crudely, but ride the backs of the Ukrainians as they deliver this blow to Putin. There is more we can do on sanctions. The sanctions that have been imposed are unprecedented against Putin and Russia, the speed and the impact. But there are a number of banks that have not been sanctioned. Of course, we know that the administration has banned the import of Russian oil and gas and coal, but did not sanction them because the Europeans are not on board. We should definitely be pressing the Europeans to ban the import of Russian oil and gas. Easy for me to say sitting here in Dallas, but Ukrainians are paying a horrific price And so particularly as the winter ends, the Europeans, I think, can stomach a little bit of inconvenience when it comes to heating and other things. And I think we also need to do more when it comes to going after more people in Russia and being more aggressive about not just freezing, but seizing the assets that come from these oligarchs and others and going after Putin's own money. So I think there is much more we can and should be doing. We talked about the military assistance that we should be doing more of for Ukraine. And so I hope that's the view of the president and of the administration. I'm not convinced that that's the view of some of his top advisors, however. Yeah, that's what we are continually learning is that whenever the president steps a foot forward, the White House is all to the ready to pull the rug out from under him. I think I mixed two metaphors there, but 
We all know what's happening. They're constantly revising and extending his remarks in order to ensure that the United States isn't too forward-leaning, isn't in front of the Europeans, and it's an embarrassment to my mind. Yeah, I mean, it was unseemly, frankly, Danny, when after his comments in Warsaw, and so quickly his administration was out there saying the president didn't mean it about Putin's not remaining in power. And then the president uh, a few days later said, eh, no apologies. I'm not backing off what I said. So there are times where I think they should let him act as president. His instincts, I think, uh, more often than not, at least when it comes to this issue, are, are pretty good. Right. It's not the Republicans who don't have confidence in him. It's his own White House, and it shows. Plus the Republicans. Uh, plus the Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. <laughs> David, David, Basically been... all of us. <laughs> Listen, you know something? I'm not sure what the alternative looks like here either. We all need to show good leadership on this. We've got to unite around this, absolutely. David, thank you so much, both for your patience with our technical difficulties, but also with your willingness to come on. This has been a wonderful conversation. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep writing. Keep pressuring everybody that needs to be pressured. We're super grateful to you. And say hello to President Bush. We miss him. Will do. Thanks to both of you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. So Zelensky spoke this morning that we're recording this to the U.N. Security Council, and he basically said to the U.N., kick Russia off the Security Council or disband yourselves. (laughs) And boy, is he ever right. How did we get to a situation where a member of the Security Council is invading a country, committing horrific war crimes, and has a veto power over any accountability over this. I mean, the U.N. is hey, just on, a completely hey. feckless, feckless institution. It's worthless. Hang this- on one sec, Mark. I think you are forgetting that you're just talking about 20 percent of the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council when you talk about Vladimir Putin's Russia. You've forgotten the other 20 percent of the People's Republic of China. Oh, I haven't. Which has a million people in concentration camps. No, I know. Forty percent of the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council are, by the United Nations' own <laughs> standards, war criminals. Yes. Hmm. Conclusions? Conclusion, yes. International justice is not going to solve this problem. And international institutions are not going to solve this problem. Russia's still on the UN Human Rights Council. Though we're launching a campaign to kick them off. Which is just, I mean, I want to cry. It's such bullshit. Yeah. I mean, look, the UN isn't going to save us for anyone who is wondering. Nor is the UN Human Rights Council, which has absolutely nothing to do with human rights and everything to do with anti-Semitism. But that's another podcast. That's a different episode, which we will get to at some point. But look, here's the reality is that the way you defeat totalitarian regimes and deal with war crimes is to defeat the aggressors. There's no substitute for victory, as someone famously once said. And if we are angry about the images that we've seen from Buka, if we're angry about the stories we're hearing about women being raped in front of their children, if we are angry seeing bodies in the streets with bullets in their heads and their hands tied behind their back, the answer is to arm the Ukrainians to the teeth, give them everything they're asking for. And here's the thing. We're not giving them everything we're asking for. Biden had this press conference the other day, made a huge deal about giving them 800 stingers. Zelensky said, I need 500 a day, 500 a day. Our effort is not keeping up with the strategy for victory. We need to help the Ukrainians drive the Russians from more territory where we will unfortunately discover more war crimes. Everywhere the Russians have been, everywhere they have occupied, we will see more evidence of war crimes. But they need to be driven out of the territory of Ukraine. The only reason that Zelensky would not do that is if he didn't think he was going to have the support to get it done. I think this guy is Churchill. He is a courageous leader. And if we give him the means, he spends half his time begging the West 
for the weapons he needs in order to get the job done. Well, he shouldn't even be asking. We should be saying, what do you need? And then giving it to him and let him focus on fighting the Russians. Well, the reason that he has to beg is because we have been complacent, because we are the enablers of these human rights violators. The reality is that all of them start small. Putin started small when he began, but they're emboldened when there's absolutely no accountability. And that's what David said to us in our interview, and I think he's absolutely right. But there are two sides. There's Putin who does it, and there are the rest of us who don't care. And we have spent way too much time patting ourselves on the back for how great we are when we have been willing to watch half a million people in Syria die, a million people be in concentration camps in China, and yet let the Olympics go on there. We could go on here. Russia is not even the first on the list of countries that still remain in good standing, countries where we invest, countries whose companies are floated on our stock market, companies that are enriched by the investments of Europeans and Americans and Asians. So I think that if we get anything out of this on our side, it is, I hope, an accounting of how we failed to stand up and do what was necessary to stop Putin from invading Ukraine. And that, by the way, is what Zelensky really said to the Security Council. He said, you are at fault. You let this happen. And I think he's right. Amen to that. Well, with that, let's end our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>